Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best tech leaders in the world to help you scale from 2 million ARR to 100 million ARR. Today, we have a very special guest. His name is Nader Sabagin, general partner at 360 Capital. Nader, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Mike. It's a pleasure. And uh, let's get to know a little bit more about yourself. And uh, I know that you have a, an amazing career as an operator and you are, you are an investor uh, since the last four years. Uh, um, just let us know a little bit more about your background and how did you end become uh, an investor? Uh, sure. Um, I, I'm, I'm an engineer. I started my career in management consultancy for firms such as uh, Accenture and then McKinsey. Uh, with the advent of the internet, I decided to join um, mm -hmm. this whole crazy world of startups. This we're talking late '90s, right at the start of the uh, of the internet boom, and um, I spent about 15 years on the other side uh, as an entrepreneur, manager in tech startups, uh, B2C, and the most prominent project, uh, sort of one of the first B2B SaaS uh, companies in Europe uh, that scaled quite substantially in the supply management space mm -hmm. and um yeah as i as you said in the last four years i've uh, moved to this side and i'm now uh, an investor and, uh, and a general partner at 360 capital that's amazing uh, just to give some context uh, can you just share a little bit more about 360 capital what is the investment thesis what, sure. what kind of companies um you, you guys sure are looking thing. for. And I mean, 360 what? Capital is one of the pioneers in tech venture in Europe. Uh, the firm started out uh, in 1997 um, and uh, has over two decades of history in supporting entrepreneurs scale their businesses. Um, the firm focuses on uh, the early stage, uh, predominantly in continental Europe, uh, mostly on in France and Italy, where we have uh, our offices. Okay. Uh, we've also done several investments in Spain lately. Um, we are, as the name itself implies, uh, we, we invest in all things digital, uh, okay. um, deep tech, uh, B2B tech, uh, as well as consumer tech. Um, and uh, yeah, as I said, early stage. So we're talking uh, seed and Series A. Uh, although in terms of the volume of deployment, uh, it's 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 mostly Series A and some Series B. Got it. Any um, investment criteria that are um, most relevant to you when you are uh, evaluating or when you are considering an investment? Well, I mean, I would say, I, I, I guess uh, all of us are, you know, as part of our job is to build an investment thesis around mm -hmm. a particular project. So the obvious things aside, you know, the market and the competition and so forth, I think um, for me personally, one of the most important factors is our assessment of the capabilities and the ambition of the entrepreneur. I mean, Mm -hmm. To me, the entrepreneur is the most important actor. It's, it's very rare for us to get unique ideas and unique execution plans. Um, right. Most often, you have several people approaching you with uh, trying to solve the same problem. And often what happens is that 
what makes the difference in these markets is the quality of the entrepreneur. And so um, what does it for me is the process of evaluating an initiative provides us an opportunity to, to, um, to really understand and try to build a thesis around the capabilities and the potential of the entrepreneur, many of whom actually approach us uh, mm-hmm. with very thin curriculum and very, I would say, um, uh, very little information on the basis of which to assess them. But um, so, yeah, and I, you know, it boils down to, I, I think, my view, and I think it's shared by, by a number of other professionals in the space, that ultimately we're in the... Uh, we're in the business of talent management and we have to not only look at wonderful promising ideas that can be achieved through technology, but most importantly, identify the individual uh, or the individuals, the founders who, uh, who have the capabilities, the ambition and the hunger uh, to effectively pursue those dreams. That's, that's a very uh, interesting point that we'll cover a little bit more later on the show. Sure. And um, feel free to, as we discussed it in, in, in the beginning, to use your investor and operator uh, ads as you feel more comfortable, uh, given sure. your, your previous experiences, sure. Uh, sure. Sure. covering the, the next uh, points of, of our um, uh, show. And, and let's start by a rule that is being uh, repeated a lot in, in the SaaS world, which is the triple two, double, three times. So there is an investor from one of the partners of Battery Ventures uh, that believes that after product market fit, and he, he, he was proposing at 2 million ARR, uh, if you are able to triple two times, uh, from 2 to 6, 6 to 18, and then double three times from 18 to 36, 36 to 72, and 72 to 144 or 100 uh, million plus. This would be in five years, and this is the pattern of the best uh, SaaS companies in the world like Salesforce, uh, DocuSign, um, etc. So what do, you th- what do you think about this kind of growth? This is the ideal path or it depends on the company and sometimes it is even better to to grow a little bit slower i mean it is phenomenal to be honest particularly if you start from two million arr but i think you know you you can't argue it's 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 bad i mean the 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 challenge i have with all this is that it's 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 a It's an idealistic (laughs) and utopic approach because not every initiative, by the way, is a sales force. Not every successful investment has to be an investment that actually leads to companies that worth 10 or 20 billion. Um, You know, in our business, you you do have those projects that give a lot of visibility, uh, but, uh, you know, you, you, you make your money on, you know, 10Xs or 20Xs, even companies coming in the hundreds of millions of euros in, uh, mm-hmm. in valuation and exit. Uh, in fact, most often you end up you end up actually doing very well in that space. So I think um, aggressive growth in a context where money falls out of the sky, which is today's world, okay? There is so much money mm-hmm. around that it is very important for projects to demonstrate a very significant track record. And the ones that actually grow fastest are the ones that attract the most amount of investments. So 
it is in in uh, I think market conditions where there is abundant access, overabundant access to capital. I think this rule of thumb of pursuing growth at all costs and uh, not caring about how you achieve growth, okay, mm-hmm. is um, is the right approach, okay. But in my personal career, I've also lived moments where access to capital has been very limited. Okay, mm-hmm. I mean the company, uh, you know, the SaaS company that I was uh, fortunate to be uh, part of, and 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 uh, you know, led from 2001 till 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we lived several periods where there were significant global crises, and uh, there wasn't uh, you know significant access to capital. So our growth pattern, uh, particularly during those years, had to account for the fact that people wanted to see, uh, also wanted to see a project that had uh, financial sustainability. Okay, right. now. I think that kind of approach today uh, of wanting to balance growth versus financial sustainability is something that would damage an entrepreneur's prospects because mm-hmm. your competitor, who is far more aggressive than you, uh, can then attract significantly more investments and with significantly more investments be able to make significantly bigger, uh, let's say, um, investments and hence be more competitive than you uh, in the market. So, um, I think, uh, I think it's a good strategy and it's a good approach, uh, today, uh, mm-hmm. if tomorrow, uh, you know, availability of capital is reduced and so forth, then I think the balance will tilt more towards businesses and entrepreneurs and managers, uh, who show that they can build more sustainable, um, businesses. Uh, my, my point is that sort of, you know, the attitude of investors and how they value businesses changes. And that's been my experience. Uh, Got it. Right now, it's all about growth, growth. Uh, uh, you need only a few instances or few issues and one sort of your one economic crisis away from people mm-hmm. going back and saying, oh, no, uh, the model has to be sustainable growth. Right. Got it. We always cover in the show three critical ingredients, um, in our opinion, to to scale. Number one is radical focus. Number two is world-class team. And number three is uh, culture of execution. Uh, Starting with the first one with uh, radical focus, uh, we see uh, this mistake uh, happening again and again, which is we raise Series A or, or sometimes even we raise Series B and we open multiple geos at the same time, multiple verticals. We, if we are in serving small business, we move to mid-market or to enterprise very quickly, or yeah. we go downstream, and, yeah. and then we burn a lot of cash and we yeah. can get to difficult situations. Uh, and then we become, as you said, sometimes with so uh, leaving a, an euphoric moment and then a depression moment and the depressive moment uh, across the team and and there is no will to invest in any direction or there's yeah. kind of paralysis. So uh, 
How, how do you think that the founders should assure that they don't get distracted and they keep doubling down on what is working and doing some yeah. experiments about what would be the next avenues of growth without getting distracted? It's actually, it's one of my, you know, one of our number one challenges, particularly with ambitious founders, uh, because mm -hmm. you have to find the, the, the right balance. Um, I personally am a very firm believer in radical focus. I mean, radical focus is absolutely critical in my mind. And uh, you need to be doing very few things, if not just one thing, extremely well, better than anyone else in the world. And you can build your uh, competitive advantage, uh, your reason for existence and the entire narrative of your, um, of your, let's say growth potential around that single capability that you have and you keep strengthening it. Um, it is, it does become a challenge, you know, keeping entrepreneurs focused because the good entrepreneurs are also extremely creative, extremely ambitious. Right. And as things evolve, they see opportunities everywhere. They see problems in the world that can be solved with their technology and with their ideas. Um, I mean, more and more problems. And they, you know, in solving those problems, they see opportunities. And sometimes, you know, they lose the, let's say, uh, they lose the focus and they lose sort of the, 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 uh, the, um, Mm -hmm. recognition that at the end of the day, they are small firms with relatively limited resources and that spreading those resources across multiple projects and multiple initiatives could ultimately weaken um, their uh, overall prospects. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, as I said, it needs to be balanced because you don't want to, you know, you, you want to be able to actually get into new things but you have to be able to get into them at the right time, okay? Mm -hmm. For example, right. entrepreneurs who from day one say, okay, we want to expand internationally, our advice is always, okay, do your home market, do it very well, learn, build a playbook, and then start going international because you don't want to, because you're going to be making mistakes, you have to fine tune your business model and so forth. You right. don't want to do that while you're in three or four different markets, okay? Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's, it's a fine balance. It is a fine balance. Uh, um, the more I would say it's, it's also the job of more experienced, uh, managers and investors to be able to, to advise younger entrepreneurs as to how to approach this. Uh, so I think this is one of the values that we bring to the table when we discuss these strategic mm -hmm. decisions, because it's ultimately about how the resources in the company are being spent right. and deployed. And, uh, we can, we can play, you know, a positive role in making sure that those resources are deployed, um, not in a sort of in a sporadic way, but in a focused way and that, uh, the business ends up doing new and more things um, at the right time, I suppose. Absolutely. And, and there are some exercises that might help. I, I think that's in, in terms of keeping the, um, the entrepreneur motivated, because as you said, is highly ambitious, highly energetic, and 
it's, it's really to keep working on the big, on the big area audacious goal and uh, sure. how it will look like the 100 million business that they are building or even the 1P potential business if they are able to, to go for, for IPO. And then going back to what would be the key milestones to get to 50 or to 20 uh, and then to 10, 5, um, after raising, of course, um, Series A. So, and, and getting back, and sometimes there is this huge pressure of cycles of 12 to 18 months that make them think uh, it doesn't matter because we know that this will all change. It doesn't matter to think about the next three to five years because maybe we we are dead or we'll be in a very different <laughs> situation. Uh, so it's, it's but, I, but I think that this helps them to have a short, mid and long-term term and to keep motivated on the long-term vision and the mid-term vision when they need to say no, 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 no in the short term, which might be depressive for their kind of personality. So having this also clarity of vision uh, with their teams helps also with um, with execution. And that's why we bring the, the, the ingredient number two, which is really the world-class team. If we have a world-class team, in principle, radical focus and culture of execution uh, will be uh, a check. Um, and in your opinion, uh, what are some of the most difficult positions to, to hire uh, at Series A, Series B stage where you specialize in? Well, I mean, uh, obviously, uh, you know, CTO, because often, you know, you, you start off with these businesses and one of the founders is a programmer and ends up being the CTO once you know, you go from a few developers into a team of 30, 40 people, you need management experience, you need the kind of, you know, sometimes you get into a situation whereby um, from on the technical side of things, you, you need a proper CTO to sort of manage the complexity and the, uh, the, the complexity of product and people, the, uh, those roles are very difficult, uh, very, very difficult. I mean, the, the, the CTO is off, often becomes necessary and it becomes, and it's, um, it's a difficult role to, to, actually, to actually hire. Mm-hmm. Um, another one is head of growth, uh, because again, right. uh, head of growth for me is sort of combination of marketing and sales with someone who really takes responsibility and drives the numbers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, up until let's say series A, you can say, uh, head of growth is the CEO himself or herself, you know, right. uh, they're the ones that are driving growth and, and, but then you get into a situation where you need, uh, you know, to hire someone full time for this position. Uh, and, um, particularly for new businesses that have to do customer acquisition online, offline, combination of the two. It's, uh, uh, you know, these are very critical roles and, and, and very, very difficult to find the right person, uh, to be honest. Got it. And um, another, another important thing for, for entrepreneurs is to be able to sort of take a look at the organization, including the founding team and, you know, in the interest of the company and in the interest of their own, let's say, financial well-being, recognize that they need to assess the capabilities of the people that have got them there 
mostly in view of the capabilities that are necessary to get them, let's say, to the next stage, let's say from series A mm -hmm. to series B. Yep. And if there's a mismatch, they shouldn't hesitate to uh, look for alternatives, look for rearranging the structure, or let, even letting some of the people go to bring in more capable individuals. Absolutely. And things have to move fast because, you know, as you said before, we move in cycles of 12 to 18 months uh, between life, you know, where, where life and death is decided. <laughs> and if you, it's not like a normal organization where you wait, you give people time and all that kind of stuff. You have to make split second decisions, uh, be able to bring people on board within one or two months. Uh, for them to be productive and make an impact over that that cycle, uh, you know, deciding to reorganize and bringing new people on board and fitting them in cannot be a 12 to 18 month cycle, because by the time you do that, uh, you're already into your next fundraising cycle. Absolutely, and something that we we also see is. Um... There are some entrepreneurs or some founders, and in this case, the CEO, that is so afraid of um, changing some of the members of the leadership position, of the leadership team who help them to get where they are. They prefer to see the company die and suffer than to do the art choices of letting them go. Uh, and this is really something very emotional and very subconscious oriented. Uh, and I think that that's one of my main challenges uh, as trying to help a CEO and the founding team and the leadership team is helping them to overcome all those fears that they have and avoiding that they, they kill themselves by not making those decisions. Uh, as an investor, it's also um, a difficult role to, to play there. So do you have any advice for, for, for the ones who are living those kind of waiting another week, another month for this person is not so bad in their role, let's wait a little bit more. And as you said, then the time is over and, and the consequences are, are very bad. So how can, how can we help better uh, CEO to, to have the courage to move forward and, and make the hard decisions? I think, uh, I think good successful entrepreneurs are you know, they need to be ruthless leaders. They need to be obsessed with the objective and yep. they need to be able to achieve and pursue those objectives with all means necessary. Um, yep. uh, Got it. Feeling guilty, feeling a sense uh, that you have to reward loyalty, uh, <laughs> sense of organizational fairness, all of these are fine in theory, but if they get in the way of you achieving the ultimate goal, uh, you are not going to succeed. It's a very competitive world. And it's a near miracle for you as a small startup with limited resources uh, to achieve greatness. If you want to do that, uh, you can't waste time. You can't be emotional. Um, you have to be quick, you know, single-mindedly focused on the objective and um, not see your own organization's capabilities as a barrier for you to pursue them and that your organization uh, has to adapt and the individual in those organizations have to recognize uh, that 
what matters for that organization is its success. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, you, you would have to pursue, you would have to essentially send the right signals um, uh, and uh, create a culture of performance within the organization. And you, you brought the, the third critical ingredient, this, this culture of, of execution. Uh, I believe a lot on, in rhythms and rituals. And if we think as ourselves as human beings, uh, we all need a certain uh, routine uh, that helps us to feel more freedom. <laughs> That's a, a paradox. And, and I'm talking about the dailies, the weeklies, the monthlies, the quarterlies, the, the annuals, those rhythms that assure that we keep moving forward, that we keep learning as quickly as possible and that we save yeah. as much time as we can. There is any kind of rhythms that you have been seeing um, or applying on your career as a self operator that have been quite useful for you to, to assure that everyone is on the same page and that execution is, is happening? No, I think what's becoming more and more a trend and, and good practice within high-performing organizations is, um, you know, is a much more focus on, on metrics, okay? Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot more data is available. Data can be turned into information. Uh, loads and loads of systems are available to, to, to the organization. So... Uh, performance and execution a lot of the times has to do with giving each function uh, or even employee uh, certain goals and objectives uh, that are quantitative and can be measured. And mm -hmm. um, creating a culture whereby you know where you have to go and you know what you have to achieve and you can measure it and holding those individuals to account, I think that creates a culture of execute, very strong culture of execution and a very strong culture of, of, uh, uh, of getting things done, okay? Mm -hmm. um, people yeah. actually, you know, they get a strong sense of satisfaction of achieving things. Uh, and um, if you make them clear and make them measurable, um, Okay, you know, you might generate a certain level of stress, but people that want to join these kinds of organizations are also there for the adrenaline. And the, the worst thing you can do is actually have people join your organization and not feel that they are involved or be bored and so forth. Um, often, you know, uh, that actually, that itself gives a very strong sense of satisfaction knowing that you had a certain goal to achieve and that you've actually achieved it and it was quite easily measured. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's all common sense, but I think one of the, one of the good things you can do is to make sure that, uh, you know, that culture of setting goals, uh, measuring goals and sort of periodically holding people to account and, and understanding where they stand, where their performance stands vis-a-vis -vis those goals, increasingly quantitative goals, um, that is becoming, I think, uh, more and more important of creating sort of a culture of execution within organizations. 
Absolutely. And that's a, a very important uh, point. And that's why I think that the, the VP of people and also the, the CFO are critical roles in any leadership team, um, which is uh, the, ma the majority of, of the people that I see working in scale-up, especially in, in not in emerging tech cities in, in Europe, don't have a clue how uh, venture capital works. And uh, that's one of the reasons I do these shows with, with investors. Uh, and I think one of the first things that I would encourage any company is to bring one of their investors to do a presentation for all company to explain how a fund works, because this will help so much the people to understand why the hell are we trying to do something uh, so uh, ambitious in such a short uh, period of time? Because exactly. maybe maybe some of them would uh, already understand, as you said before, that this is not the ideal place for them to work. This is not the best choice for their careers. They should move to another kind of company that uh, aims for another kind of objectives and can offer a different um, stability for, for their careers. Uh, and I think that unfortunately, that, that's what separates um, mature ecosystems from emergent um, ecosystems. And again, as you said, it's having crystal clarity about what we are trying to achieve and what are the rules of the game. So, <laughs> and, and, and sometimes we, we are playing a game that we, that we don't know the rules of the game. And it's, it's the job of ourselves as leaders to, to let them know uh, what they are playing. And, and we close the show with uh, one of our favorite questions, um, yeah. which is, if you'd have the opportunity to, um, to come back um, to, to 2001, when you joined it, um, your, um, your SaaS uh, yeah, yeah, company yeah. and you've scaled it to 2015, if I recall well, uh, as you said in the beginning of the show, what advice would you offer to, um, to another? <laughs> you know, I mean, at the time we were building a SaaS company and we didn't even know it. I mean, there was no such thing as SaaS. Uh, frankly, we got into SaaS because, you know, the decision-making process of our potential customers uh, would not allow us in the door. I mean, no one would buy soft, mission-critical software from a small startup based in Milan, Italy. Um, mm -hmm. So SaaS really became our savior because we could get various function within these large organizations uh, to, let's say, temporarily, provisionally try our service without having to go through their IT infrastructure. And so we said, okay, we know we can't sell it to you, but you really want this. Why don't you use it for a few months? Uh, why don't you pay us you know, some fees uh, to use it sort of on a rental basis. The idea that all this was temporary, but it kind of turned into a product <laughs> in itself and it became permanent. Um, uh, you know, probably the thing that I missed out the most at the time in, in my, let's say, younger self leading this organization was it wasn't entirely clear to me. And this had to do mostly with sort of the premature nature of what we were doing, what the future mm -hmm. drivers of value were going to be in terms of the value, in terms of the value of the organization. So if, you know, five or 10 years down the road, we were going to present this to investors and we wanted to sell it, what aspects of our business would have been the ones that have, would have, 
would have, let's say, enticed or motivated investors to outbid each other to buy our stock or to buy our company. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, that wasn't clear to me. And so I was essentially just pursuing revenue growth. Uh, and that led us to sort of selling our SaaS products in a variety of different ways uh, transaction, subscription. Uh, God knows, uh, <laughs> having, yeah, I mean, you know, we had a revenue model that became overcomplicated and, you know, 10 years later, 10 or 12 years later, when we went out there and we were ready to actually sell the business and we were doing, I don't know, 60, 80 million euros, uh, of, of revenue in that range, those years when we were talking about, uh, the exit, mm-hmm. our valuation sort of suffered to the extent that we'd created a large, but also very complicated business for investors to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so had I known that, for example, you know, the recurring revenue nature of what we were doing was the one that had the most value, I would have ensured that our customer relationships and our commercial models were very clean and very consistent so that right. when the time came for people to assess our business, our business could have been easily understood. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's a good learning from my perspective, but it really had to do with the fact that, you know, we were a European business, one of the very, very early, uh, you know, pioneers in this whole SaaS space and the playbook of SaaS hadn't really been developed as much. And therefore by the time sort of, let's say in 2008, 2010, uh, these this sort of these role models were beginning to emerge. It was a bit too late for us to actually, you know, mm-hmm. get our house in order to really align ourselves with those kinds of narratives. Um, I mean, it's still a phenomenally successful, you know, endeavor. Absolutely, it could, have, it could have been even more successful had we been able to very early on align our let's say, revenue narrative with what the market valued the most. Amazing. Nader, thanks so much for making the time to share your experience. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for for your time and thank you for having me on this podcast. And to our community, thanks for being on that side. We keep bringing you the best of the best so you can leverage their uh, lessons and avoid their mistakes in order to let you scale as quickly as possible from 2 million ARR to 100 million ARR. We see you soon and keep scaling.